podcast is brought to you by CEW Plus at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor as we work to serve our community during this unprecedented time of change. Resiliency is best demonstrated in times of challenges. Join CEW Plus Director Tiffany Mara as she talks to students, staff, faculty, and community members connected to the University of Michigan's Center for the Education of Women Plus in our podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. Today's podcast features Dr. Scott Ellsworth, a professor in the Department of African American and African Studies since 2007. He teaches courses on African American history, Southern literature, race and sports, and crime and justice in contemporary U.S. society. His book, The Groundbreaking, The Tulsa Race Massacre in an American City's Search for Justice, was released this year, the 100th anniversary of the event. It is his second on the subject, the first, Death in a Promised Land, is the first ever comprehensive history of the horrific 1921 Tulsa race massacre. Dr. Ellsworth is helping to lead the ongoing effort to uncover the unmarked graves of massacred victims. Scott, welcome to the Strength in the Midst of Change podcast. It's truly a pleasure to get to speak to you today, and I look forward to our conversation. Well, thanks, Tiffany. I'm really honored to be on the program. Can you please tell us a little bit more about yourself and the journey that brought you to become one of the preeminent scholars on the Tulsa race massacre? Sure. I guess in a way I was lucky in that I'm a native Tulsan. I was born and raised in the city. And even though my own family history goes back in Tulsa only to the 1930s, not to the 1920s when the Tulsa race massacre occurred, even as a kid, you know, a 10 or 11 year old kid, I would occasionally hear adults or, you know, maybe neighbors or older adults, you know, talking about the massacre. And whenever somebody like me would walk into the room, they would lower their voices or change the subject. So that piqued my interest early. And now I also heard, you know, what would be sort of urban legends about it as well, too, about bodies floating down the Arkansas River or machine guns downtown, things like that. But it was very hard to find out anything about it until the summer that I turned 12. I was in the sixth grade, and I was with a couple of buddies at the uh, downtown public library in Tulsa, and we'd spend a lot of time there. And, and that day, we saw something we'd never seen before, which was a microfilm machine. And um, we were determined to use it and uh, started fiddling around with the knobs, and a librarian comes marching over. And, and she was brilliant because rather than shoo us away, she instead taught us how to use the machine. And next to the machine were these metal cabinets with you know, microfilm rolls of old issues of Tulsa Daily Newspapers. And somehow by this time, I knew that June 1921 was when this massacre, we called it a race riot in those days, was supposed to have happened. So the first reel that we threaded into the machine was from a June 1921 Tulsa newspaper, and we were just gobsmacked from the beginning. You know, big headlines, you know, 75 dead in race war, martial law declared, things like that. So I knew at that point that my hometown did have a deep, dark secret. And uh, years later, when I was a college student down at Reed College in Portland, Oregon, I needed to write a senior thesis, and I decided to write about the massacre. And so I've been at it more or less ever since. Yeah. So in your book, you point out how the massacre disappeared, and you just mentioned that as well. It's fascinating how an entire city how Tulsa could bury a secret like a massacre. What were the conditions that made that possible? 
And just to, to remind listeners too, you know, the Tulsa Race Massacre was the single worst incident of racial violence in all of American history. You had more than 1,000 African-American homes and businesses were looted and burned to the ground by a white mob with the help of white Tulsa police officers and uh, white local National Guard soldiers. We don't know how many people died to this day. I think uh, reasonable effort estimates go from somewhere in the 70s to as high as 300. 35 square blocks were just wiped out. But what happened in the aftermath of the massacre, it was national news. It was front page. You know, the New York Times, it made the Times of London. It even made the Times of India. But the Tulsa city fathers, the businessmen and others who ran the city realized that they had a public relations problem. Here was this oil town wanting to attract more business than businessmen. And they realized that, you know, uh, melee like this, uh, martial law, the disruption of, you know, railroad travel was bad news for them. So very early on, they decided to bury it. You know, official records were stolen and disappeared. Photographs of the massacre were confiscated by Tulsa police officers, never to be seen again. And for nearly 50 years, the city's two white daily newspapers simply refused to write about it, while early researchers, and researchers as late as the 1970s, had their lives and livelihoods threatened for looking into it. So in the white community, it just became a a subject that was not to be discussed and buried. So you had entire generations of people growing up and not knowing about this major event in their hometown. The irony, though, Tiffany, is that the massacre was not also discussed in a public sphere in the African-American community in Tulsa as well for decades. The way to look at that is to think about massacre survivors. They are analogous to Holocaust survivors and some combat veterans in that they didn't want to relive the trauma that they had gone through. And many of them did not want to burden their children or grandchildren with these horrific incidences, you know, had had to endure. So they just simply didn't talk about it. And it's really not till the 1960s that the massacre becomes a subject again for discussion in the African-American community. So for about 50 years, the story was buried and it's taken us about 50 years to get the story out again. Yeah, now in your book, you mention a particular author about 50 years out from the massacre. I believe his name was Don Ross. Mm-hmm. Can you describe how he started to help make the story public? Yeah, Don Ross is still alive, and it just, in fact, had a freeway named after him in Tulsa. Don Ross was a native Tulsan, you know, had family members that were affected by the massacre as well, too. But in the 1960s, he had a column for the Oklahoma Eagle which was uh, Black Tulsa's leading you know, newspaper of the era, and still is. And he was of a personality that would go into things that other people would avoid. He had heard about the massacre and decided to write a series of articles about it. And he really broke the taboo on that. He later helped to run an African-American magazine called Oklahoma Impact. They did an issue about the massacre and really had the first photos that were widely available, printed, that came out in 1971. And that broke the story in the African-American community. And then later on, Don was uh, the person who was crucial in creating the Tulsa Race Riot Commission in the 1990s, which was the first state commission to look into this event. So he's been just a key figure in getting this story out. 
Yeah, I'd have to imagine that as a person who's uncovering this hidden secret, that it's been controversial. Could you describe or share some of the strategies that you use to navigate the challenge among both the white and African-American communities? Sure. So just to remember, you know, I began this in the summer of 1975 between my junior and senior years in college as a 21-year-old, you know, rising senior and writing his bachelor's thesis about the event. And, you know, I ransacked the archives, any historical repositories, anything I could to find any information about the massacre. And the problem was there was just not a lot to be found. And more importantly, I couldn't figure out how the spark for the massacre is this incident that happens in an elevator in a downtown Tulsa building, and also how that was treated by a a white newspaper in town. And I could never kind of make the connection on how we went from this seemingly minor incident into this racial holocaust. And a breakthrough that I had was when I learned about an elderly African-American gentleman by the name of W.D. Williams. His family was one of the most prominent in Greenwood. That was what Tulsa's African-American community has historically been called, you know, was there. They owned a movie theater. They owned a garage. They owned a three-story office building. And Mr. Williams had endured and survived the massacre as a 16-year-old. And he was the first oral history interview I ever did. I sat down with him and It was the day when everything started to make sense because he was in all the right places at the right time. And then three years later, Mr. Williams, you know, was key in introducing me to other African-American massacre survivors, all of whom had been adults during in 1921. And many of them, they had never done an interview before. Many of them had not really shared their stories with their families, but for whatever reason, they Um, opened up to me. And it's really because of them that, you know, we know what happened. You know, history is not just something that uh, exists in archives and libraries that tends to skew towards certain directions. You know, much of American history, and and this is particularly true in communities of color, much much of the history resides in the minds and memories of elders. So oral history is a way to get that. And oral history is has proved to be just crucial in being able to save this story. Yeah. So, you know, in what you've learned about the Tulsa Race Massacre, you know, and I don't know if conditions or atmosphere or culture, what the right term is for it, but what are the conditions that you see in today's environment that continue to persist that were present, you know, from your research from the 1920s and your lived experiences? Well, I mean, you know, American society is tragically, you know, we're still having to cope with racism and widespread racism in our society. That's now been, you know, increased in a way that we have these great divides of mistrust. So, you know, that certainly plays a role into how our society functions and how we deal with it. We still have great issues, and these issues have come alive recently as well in Oklahoma and particularly with how we view our history. You know, the reality is, is that we can learn from history, but we can only learn from it if we tell the whole thing, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And, you know, obviously America has made great contributions to world culture. We've improved the lives of people all over the world, but also America has had many, many failings and many egregious failings. 
And we can't just tell one side of the story, and that has often been the case. The problem at the moment is Oklahoma is one of those states where new laws are being passed that are really trying to minimize how certain subjects such as slavery or the Tulsa Race Massacre, for that matter, are taught to school children. And that's going to be a great problem. Again, we can only learn from our history if we tell the same thing, and we're coping with that issue right now. You know, another piece that strikes me about this is, you know, you mentioned Tulsa, it was a PR challenge. And I think, you know, the U.S., I'm going to even bring it back to our own context within U of M, we suffer from this needing to be the best, needing to be perfection, the leaders and best mantra. And it feels like it's almost a trap to not be able to expose the underbelly of how things unfold and when things don't go well. You know, I've been one who creates change from the inside. And so thinking about practices at U of M, what can we take away from what you've learned to reflect on practices at U of M to increase inclusion and belonging? Well, I think that there's great challenges here at the university. And I think I have to start out by going back to the one that I think is absolutely crucial for the future of the university. And that has to do, again, I teach in the Department of Afro-American African Studies, but I just think that there is no question whatsoever that we need to dramatically increase African-American enrollment for undergraduates at the U of M. Mm-hmm. It has been static at, you know, 4% or something like that. You know, for most of 14 years, I've been teaching at the university. The university will trumpet this DEI initiative, this panel, this setting and whatnot. But I think until we actually get more bodies in the classrooms, more African-American bodies in the classrooms and in the dormitories, is that the nature of problems with racism at the university are simply going to persist. So that, to me, is job number one. Uh, The enrollment should be two or three times what it is right now. There's no question about that. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, I think that, again, it's important to, um, you know, you can be loyal to a place, you can love a place, I'm a native of Tulsa, and I'm not ashamed of the fact that I'm from Tulsa. I love my city to this day. But if we're going to be honest about something that you love, you also need to tell the full story. I've certainly talked to elder African-American graduates at the U of M who've discussed, you know, described conditions that they had to endure, you know, in terms of trying to find housing in the city, you know, be barred from living in the dormitories back in the 1940s and certainly experiences that my own students have had, you know, while on campus. I think that we need to be open about the past of the university and talk openly about it and, you know, the history of Ann Arbor and of Michigan itself. So I think that history plays a real important role here. Yeah. With our history, how do we make U of M a place where African-American students want to enroll? Well, that's a great question. You know, again, I think that there are some things like the new Trotter Multicultural Center, the fact that it is right off the diag, I think that's been an important step forward. But again, I think it has to do with cultivating interest in students, you know, during their middle school and high school years as the university of being a place to come to. You know, the university has, and Ann Arbor has a very fraught relationship with Detroit. 
And, you know, lots of people who live in Ann Arbor would rather do anything than go to Detroit. Detroit's a place they're fearful of. Detroit's a place they don't want to go to and have anything to do with. What they don't realize is that in certainly in portions of the African-American community in Detroit, the U of M is not viewed particularly well and not viewed in a particularly progressive way or in a welcoming way. It's been good that the university, you know, has some outposts in Detroit right now, but I think much more work needs to be done and earlier on with students that they can see that not only is there a path for them to come to the U of M, but that the U of M is going to offer them things that will help them and help their families. Yeah. When you look back at your accomplishments, what are you most proud of? (laughs) Well, you know, uh, I'm only partially responsible here, but certainly I'm more proud of my children than anything that I've done. (laughs) That's what I tell my son constantly as well. (laughs) Uh, If you had a chance to say one thing to students of any age today, what would it be? I would say a couple of things. So, You know, that little undergraduate thesis that I wrote in 1976 and turned it into a book in 1982. It's called Death in a Promised Land. You know, it's been in print now for 39 years. You know, it's a book that people are still reading today. So I would say two things. First of all, I think you need to trust your instincts. Trust that the things that you're interested in, they may well be of great value and of important value for others later on. But also, you don't have to wait. You can get to work now as an 18, 19, 20, 21-year-old. You can start researching things now. You can start writing about them now. And certainly in this day and age, with podcasts, the internet, you know, on and on and on, the opportunities to make your voice heard are out there. And go ahead and dig in. You know, jump on in. The water's fine. Thank you for listening to CEW's podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. To learn more about this episode or the services and virtual programming offered by CEW+, please visit cew.umich.edu. Here at CEW+, we navigate circumstantial barriers by providing academic, financial, and professional support to help you reach your personal potential. Established to support women through higher education, we lift up women and all underserved communities at the University of Michigan and beyond. Through career and education counseling, funding, workshops, events, and a diverse, welcoming community, we exist to empower. We are CEW+, and we are here to help you reach your potential. The University of Michigan resides on the traditional territories of the three fires peoples, the Ojibwa, Odawa, and Potawatomi. Thank you.